0: All right, let's in hymn number 36.
1: So it's unavoidable that we have to talk about mom, and this might be tough. I wasn't here last week, and I'm very, very grateful to Micah and Tom and Alex, who filled in in my absence. I had to go quickly. My mom in Tuscaloosa had a very, very serious stroke. It was her second stroke. She's now paralyzed on the left side of her body. Sometime early next week, she will go to a a rehab center. And then once she gets to the rehab center, she has 21 days. And then she's ours, as in mine and my siblings. We have to decide what to do next. The doctor said she'll need 24-hour-a-day nursing care for the balance of her life. And so we're trying our best to figure out what the next move is and what the best next move is. It is my intention to be here every Sunday, but some midweek services, I'll be back in Tuscaloosa because my sister from California came in last week. My sister from Ohio is down there now. My sister, who lives in Tuscaloosa, the responsibility is all kind of falling on her shoulders. And so my brother, who lives here in Nashville, and I will be taking rotations to go down and help her. So it is my intention to always be here on Sundays. Uh, Wednesdays will be a bit more of a jump ball. But we usually take some time off from our midweek services during the holidays anyway. So uh, we'll just... Let you know how the schedule falls out. Friday, no Thursday, my mom got up in the morning, had suffered a stroke, sat down on the couch. She was found when my sister, who was expecting her for dinner, finally went to the house and discovered her there. My sister stayed with her all night Thursday night at the hospital in the ICU My brother went down Friday, stayed all night with my mother in the ICU. I went down Saturday. I got there in the torrential rain, went right to the hospital, and spent the next 16 hours sitting at my mom's bedside. And when you do that, a lot of things come into rather sharp relief. You learn a lot just watching somebody breathe. Because... Life and all its complications and all the details and all the all kind of uh, dissipates very quickly when the one primary interest in biological life at that moment is breathe. Just breathe. We can handle all the other stuff in time, but right now, mom, what you need to do is just breathe. Life gets real simple at that moment. And it was interesting watching both the fragility and the obstinacy of biological human life. Mom looked so very fragile laying there, and yet at the same time, just didn't give up, kept breathing. In a very similar way, you know I love theology. I love doctrine uh, I will spend hours and hours reading thick tomes written by old dead guys because I just really like theology. And I'll discuss and argue with anybody about the finer points and the minutiae of sound doctrine. I like all that. But when you're sitting at a bedside where death sort of hangs in the shadows, where eternity literally is hanging on the precipice of every exhalation and inhalation, all of that doctrine, all of that theology, all those books, all that stuff gets narrowed down very quickly to what's central, what's important. Jesus. At that moment, that moment of passing from this life to the next, You're either in Christ or you're not. Christ is either in you or he's not. And the whole rest of forever is dependent on that paradigm right there. Is he or isn't he? I couldn't help but think a lot this week about the thief on the cross. Who we read was one of the two malefactors who railed against Christ who made fun of Christ. And yet, almost instantaneously, one of them was changed and said, we're dying because we're guilty, but he's not guilty of anything. And said to Christ, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And that man had a more sure word of promise than I've ever had in my life. He had Jesus himself look him in the eye and say, today, You'll be with me in paradise. And I have often said, when you're nailed to a piece of wood and death is imminent, there's not a whole lot of religion that can help you at that moment. There's nothing you can tell that guy on that cross to do. You can't give him a list of rules or a set of instructions. You can't say, you know what you need to do now, now that you recognize who Christ is. You need to be baptized. He's going to respond, have you noticed I can't? There's nothing you can tell him to do. He did the one thing, the one most essential thing. He had that one very clear, very central thought, which is he knew who to look to. He looked to Christ. Because at the point where you're stepping from this life into the next, what matters is Jesus. Thought about that a lot this week because I had a lot of time to think. I had a lot of time to listen to her breathe. I had a lot of time to just consider what's important. Breathe in Jesus. So, in a very strange and providential way, in the middle of a really difficult and heart wrenching week, I refocused. Not going to cry. Okay, I might cry. In the middle of all that, in God's very sweet providence, He not only kept mom breathing, but he kept me believing, and he kept me faithful, and he kept me trusting. And I'll tell you this, doctrine does matter, because if you believe in absolute sovereign election if you believe that God who made everything keeps everything in control all the time, if you know that in fact a sparrow cannot fall without his active participation and knowledge, if you know that the lot is cast into the lap and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord, if you know that he knows the number of hairs on your head and knows how many stars are in the universe and can name every one of them by name, if you know that that God has got you, well, you're going to be okay. Here's the hard part that God has got my mom. So, whatever happens next is going to fall out according to his good providence. And how often have you heard me say, see, it's so easy to to pontificate. It's so easy to theologize. It's so easy to spread these very nice-sounding theological notions. And then when they come back and smack you in the face, you find out what you're really all about. Because how many times have I said to you, nothing can reach you that doesn't first pass through nail-scarred hands? That's a nice turn of a phrase. How many times have I said to you, God is much too holy not to do that which brings him the greatest glory, and he loves us too much not to do that which brings us the greatest good. That's a really good thought. And then the rubber meets the proverbial road, and you find out what you really believe. And it turns out that the knowledge of God's absolute sovereignty got me through and is getting me through An extremely difficult time. I don't know how Arminians do it. I don't know how people who don't believe in a sovereign God do it. I don't know how people who think that God is up there waiting on us so that he can react to it. I don't know how they do it. But I know this. A God who's in charge can get you through terrifically difficult times. Right, Dwight? Yes. Right, Micah? Absolutely. Okay. Right, Tom? Absolutely. Alright, so that's that was this week. Let's see what the next week brings. <laughs> Keep praying for mom. And I'm very, very proud of my siblings. They all came in from all over the country. And we'll get her through this. And we'll get her situated. But it'll take some time and some prayers. All right, I have other stuff. I have wonderful email I can share with you, but the clock is ticking. So let's start right into the lesson. Two weeks ago, we left off right in the middle of Matthew 18. We have been working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew And we are at Matthew 18, 15. In the earlier parts of this chapter, Jesus was responding to his disciples who were having a discussion about which of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. After watching Jesus do all these miracles, after watching Jesus speak to the Father, and the Father responds, after seeing Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration after seeing Moses and Elijah appear on either side of him and then disappear as God said this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased hear him in the midst of that these guys are still arguing about which one of them is the cool guy it's hard to believe but it is indicative of human nature get 12 men in a room, one of them will become the leader. One of them will rise up and say, I got this, I'm taking charge. I got alpha dog, here I go. I got this, don't worry. And the disciples, especially before the Holy Spirit came before Pentecost, they were as human as any of us. And I like that the Bible is honest enough to reveal that they were every bit as human as we are. It's always interesting to listen to people Puff themselves up. I heard a preacher one time say, if I had been there in those days, sort of in that tone of voice too, I wouldn't have run and hid. I'd have been there when Jesus came out of the tomb. No, you wouldn't. No, you'd do the same thing they did. You'd run, you'd hide, you'd scatter, you'd save your own skin because that's what humans do. And because Jesus had to be singular, he had to accomplish our salvation by himself. And he had to die by himself. He had to resurrect by himself. He had to ascend to heaven to the Father's right hand by himself. He didn't need anybody's assistance. He didn't need anybody's approval. He didn't need anybody to cheer him on. Go, Jesus. He had it. He had it covered. He was going to do it. And it was important that he do it all by himself so that he gets all the glory. So that he is, as I already said, the central issue in life. So, in order to explain to them what real greatness looks like, Jesus brought a child to himself. And he said, To be great is to serve. And you have to trust me, believe in me, come to me the way this child did. Not overthinking it, not debating it, not arguing about it, with no guile, just coming to Christ. Openheartedly, full faithfully, coming to Christ. He said, that's the way you have to approach me. And once you do that, you will realize that genuine greatness exists in making nothing of yourself. In the men's group, we've been looking at Philippians, and you got lessons from Philippians last week from the three men who were up here while I was gone. And I love Philippians too because Paul writes that we should have that mind in us that was also in Christ, that though he was equal with God, he didn't think it was robbery. He didn't grasp on to his godhood. He emptied himself. He let go of the majesty that he had always had with God and then he humbled himself not only from heaven down to this dusty ball, but then he humbled himself all the way to the cross and died not for any evil within himself, not for any sin within himself. He died for other people, so he is the ultimate example of absolute humility. And Paul says to the church, be like that. Let that mind be in you, that mind that recognizes that Christ humbled himself tremendously for your benefit, so then you should humble yourself tremendously for other people's benefit. The word agape, one of the three Greek words that is translated love, the third one I've told you, eros, you don't find in the Bible anywhere, you find it in classical Greek, And that leaves you with phileo and that leaves you with agape. Well, that word agape, the best definition of it that I've ever heard. Is doing for the one who is loved. What is most beneficial to the one who is loved. Even if the one who is loved doesn't appreciate it or understand it. Or even really respond to it. It's the very essence of sacrifice. Christ sacrificed For the very people who were spitting at him, yelling at him, and nailed him to a cross, the very same people who had beaten him, he's hanging on a cross, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Genuine sacrifice. Okay, so Jesus says, that's greatness. You humans have it all wrong. You have it all upside down. You think greatness is accomplishing mastery over other people. So that's not what great is. Great in the kingdom of heaven is to make so little of yourself that you would become, as he did, like the lowest servant in the house and wash feet. That's great. So then he talks about stumbling blocks. And he said, stumbling blocks are going to come. Struggles, trials are going to come in this lifetime, but woe to the ones who bring them. And then he gives an example starting in verse 12. And he talks about a man who has a hundred sheep. And he says if he's got a hundred sheep and one goes astray, a good shepherd will leave the ninety and nine in a safe place and he'll go find the one. Which is very, very reassuring to those of us who have a tendency to wander. Mm -hmm. Can I get a witness? So right from there he says verse 14, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If you're his sheep, if you belong to him, like I said, if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, then it is not the will of God that you would perish. And I'm prone to believe that the will of the almighty is always accomplished. I can't find anywhere in history or in the Bible where God ever willed to do something and then failed. Because human beings were just too difficult to deal with. God up there eternally frustrated. I tried to get him, but he just wouldn't cooperate. You don't find a God like that anywhere in the Bible. Instead, you find the God who makes absolute declarations about what he's going to do and who has all the power in order to accomplish the very things he intends to do and then does everything according to the counsel of his own will. That's the God of the Bible. That, by the way, is a God who can take care of you and that takes us to verse 15 the next two things that Matthew cites for us have to do with a brother who's in sin and how do you respond to him and then right on the heels of that forgiveness these two things go together I grew up in the church There are other pastors and elders in the room who I think will probably agree with me that churches, unfortunately, have a very bad habit of not only beating the sheep, but oftentimes demolishing their own. Churches have a tendency to attack when they find a weakness. I shouldn't say churches in general, legalistic churches have a tendency rather than to find compassion and forgiveness when they see somebody fall or somebody fail. Instead, they have a tendency to point at it for the very same reason that people watch Jerry Springer. Mm -hmm. Because you can watch those kinds of shows and go, I might be bad, but at least I'm not like that. And that same sort of attitude seems to permeate so much of religion where people go, I'm pretty good because I have a set of rules and I've accomplished my set of rules. That makes me good. And then you have a failing and you haven't followed some rule and therefore I'm better than you. That's not Christianity. That's just raw legalism. Jesus is going to describe how you deal with someone who is caught in a sin. He's very plain about it. It's somebody who has, in fact, sinned. And then he moves right from how to restore such a one or how to react to such a one right to and forgive. Because, again, legalists have very, very long memories. And they'll come after you later. Say, hey, remember when you did? And they'll dangle that over you, hold it over you. Because legalism, get this right, the law, the law of Moses and all legalism that flows from it, can't help you. All it can do is condemn you. But it can't bend to help you. The law stands monolithically and says, these are the rules. And if you break any one of those rules, according to James, you're guilty of the whole law. And the law has a curse attached to it. So if you fail in any one part of the law, the law can only curse and condemn you. Which is why the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, the last word of the Old Testament is curse. Which is why it's so good that there's a New Testament. A New Testament of a new covenant of the sacrificial work of Christ where he became a curse for us. And not only took on the wrath of God and endured the curse in our place, but then removed that law that would condemn us, nailing it to his cross, taking it out of the way. So that we are doubly secure, not only is the curse removed, but the very thing that would condemn us is removed, and then the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, so when we stand before God, he doesn't look at us, or our behavior, or our standard against the law, he looks at us and he sees his son, and he's well pleased in his son, and so Paul would write in the Ephesians that we are accepted in the beloved one. This will be the third time I've said it, if you're in Christ, and Christ is in you, you're going to be okay. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, but it's always in Christ Jesus. So how are we to deal with someone in our midst in the church who is caught in a sin? The Bible does not say pounce. Instead, it says, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. That's where it begins. You don't make a public spectacle of him. You take him aside privately. It's a private thing. And you talk to him and you reprove him and you explain it to him. Let's talk for a moment about this word sin. What exactly does it mean to sin? Uh, Somebody, Tom, you're somebody. Look up 1 John 3, 4 for a moment because I think 1 John 3, 4 is the best definition of sin that you're going to find in the Bible. Because far too often, since I've mentioned the legalists, far too often legalists have sets of rules that you don't find in the Bible anywhere. When I was in high school, back just after the flood, but when I was in high school, and it was a really long time, when I was in high school, there was a movement, the Jesus crowd, the Jesus hippie movement, that swept through the local high schools and colleges. And one of the main behaviors that was part of that movement was, we don't go to movies. We're Christians, so we don't go to movies. When I asked one of them, well, I understand that you have to be discerning about what goes into your eyes. And I I understand that there are plenty of lousy movies, so I get that. But none? No movies? You're going to no movies? Why? And they said, because movie theaters are dark. (laughs) So I said, do you sleep with the lights on? (laughs) Okay, so what had they done? They created a religious standard that you don't find anywhere in the Bible. And then they judged other people on the basis of whether or not they held their personal standard. I've told you many, many times, your personal conviction is your personal conviction. And if you're convicted of something and then you act against your own conscience, Paul says that becomes sin for you because you knew that you weren't supposed to do it and you did it anyway. So now you're in rebellion. But your standard can't become everybody's standard unless it's in the Bible and legalists have a tendency to make up all kinds of rules I've been in churches where women were not allowed in if they weren't wearing a skirt or a dress no pants for women most of the men in the room right here wouldn't be allowed in because they're not wearing ties it would be me and two other guys it a very small meeting that day <laughs> Because these are just the rules that people make up and then they become religious standards. But the Bible's very, very clear about what sin is. Tom will read it for us. 1 John 3 4.
0: Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness.
1: Okay, so it's one of those words, it's anomia, it's, it's taking that word nomos, law, and putting the alpha negative in front of it, turning it backwards, lawlessness, and so he says this is what sin is, sin is lawlessness, to break the law of God is the essence of what sin is, so there is a standard, the standard is God's law when Jesus is speaking to these people remember he's speaking to a Jewish audience. He has not yet been to the cross. He has not yet brought about uh, the resurrection or Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has not come yet. The new covenant is not in effect yet. These folks are under the law of Moses and they must keep all 613 rules of the law of Moses and the essence of what sin is is breaking any one of those rules. So it's very clear. It's very specific what a sin is and if your brother sins you go and you reprove him in private and if he listens to you well then you've gained or won your brother so that's always the first step make it a private thing go to him privately Paul tells us that the word of God being God breathed is appropriate for reproof for instruction in righteousness. So I would say the best thing to do is take your Bible with you and sit down with them and say, I have a concern about this. Let's talk about it biblically. You profess to be a Christian, a believer in Christ. What do you think about your behavior here? And if they hear you, if they listen to you, if their behavior changes, if they repent, well, then you've won your brother. Well done, you. Don't tell anybody. There's no next statement that says, And then go spread around that you told this guy to get back in line. There is no instruction that says, go puff yourself up and make sure that everybody knows that you're the brother winner. (laughs) Make the (laughs) t-shirts. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But because people are stubborn. But if he does not listen to you, then take one or two more with you. And then Jesus does something really interesting. He quotes right from the Deuteronomical Law. That word almost didn't make it out of my mouth. Deuteronomical. It's just a fun word to say. Deuteronomical. It's like cinnamon and aluminum. It's just one of those words. Let's go look at it. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 19. Keep your finger there in Matthew. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in the Old Testament. These are the five books of Moses. Five, Penta, the Pentateuch, they're sometimes called. Verse 15, chapter 19, Deuteronomy a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Now think about how serious this is because there were particular sins that would result in stoning. There were particular sins within national Israel where the remedy was death. So this is really important. So God says, you can't just have one witness against somebody else and have people agree and go, yeah, you're right, let's kill him. There have to be at least two witnesses to the particular crime, which is why you might recall in the book of John, we read about Jesus dealing with the woman caught in adultery, caught in the very act. And then they drag her out into the street To stone her, because that's what the law requires of an adulteress. And of course, you know that Jesus said, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And then you read that from the oldest to the youngest, they all just kind of dropped their stones until there was nobody left but Jesus. And he said to her, when he said, where now are your accusers? And she said, there's none but you. And he said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Stop it. Don't keep up the activity, but grace won against the law. The law would have killed her. Grace intervened and didn't condemn her. Okay, so this is a really important thing. You have to have two witnesses to any crime because the penalties were oftentimes very serious. So then Moses in Deuteronomy via God writes this about two witnesses. Verse 16, if a malicious witness or a false witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in the office in those days. And the judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother, and thus you shall purge the evil from among you. By the way, this is a great rule of jurisprudence that I think the American court system should have implemented a long time ago. Amen. Mm-hmm. What it means is if you accuse somebody and it is proven that you accuse them falsely, then whatever penalty they would have received, you receive. Yeah. there would be many, many fewer malicious lawsuits in our court system if this was the rule. Amen. So really, really important that not only is there two witnesses, but you can't have one person who has a grudge against another person, like let's say I have a grudge against Micah. I don't, but let's say I do. Wait. Um. I haven't seen my chair yet. (laughs) Wait. It's been more than five weeks.
0: It's in, actually. I just got the call. So we can deliver it this
1: week. I don't see it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Looks like you got a grudge.
1: We have established a grudge. Okay, so now I'm going to take Micah to court. We're going to take him to the judges, in this case, the judges of Israel. And I'm going to accuse him of promising me a chair I never got. Okay, now, if I'm accusing him all by myself, my case is going to get thrown out. So I go find somebody else, and I pay them money, or I make a deal with them, and I say, come say you saw it too. Okay, that guy is the false witness. He didn't actually see it. He's just doing it because he's helping me to promote my case. He's going to be much less likely to be my false witness if he finds out that whatever punishment would have been doled out to Micah will be doled out to him for his falsehood. This is such a big deal that it's not just part of the 613 rules. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You will not bear false witness against your brethren. It's a really big deal in God's thinking and economy. So knowing that, back to Matthew, knowing that that rule already stands in the Deuteronomical law and knowing that his audience is going to be familiar with that rule, he says If the sinning brother does not listen to you, then take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. He didn't just make that up. That's been in place ever since Moses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to, this is the word ecclesia. We have to talk about this for a moment the NASB, it's translated to the church. But the word ecclesia is better translated assembly because Israel in the Old Testament is referred to as the assembly of Israel. When the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament translated into Greek, when the Septuagint translators came across this notion of the assembly... They translated it with the very right and very good word, ecclesia, which then gets translated into English as church, and now you have the church in the wilderness. And then you have people mixing and matching and confusing the church and Israel, and they start saying, well, Israel is the church in the Old Testament, because they're called the church in the wilderness, and then the church is Israel in the New Testament, and there you go, you've mixed and matched And you no longer have the Old Covenant, New Covenant distinctions, and that's where you get all kinds of theological confusion and difficulties. There was no church, if by that technical term we mean the gathering of the elect who are saved in Christ, there was no quote-unquote church at the moment Jesus was saying this. But he's talking about the assembly of Israel. And there were several crimes in the Deuteronomical law that you could commit where you would be put out of the assembly. Sometimes it's called out of the camp. You don't get to be part of God's people anymore. You don't get to be part of the nation. You're out of the camp. And so recognize that as we work through this, Jesus is saying you take him before the assembly. The assembly of Israel in that case... But now having made all those distinctions, I will say that I think these rules work just as well within the church. But Jesus was not specifically speaking of the church at this moment. Got that? Did I confuse anybody? Okay. I know that's technical, but it matters. If he will not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed, and if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the whole assembly. In other words, you don't start with, Leon, I caught you. Leon, I got you. You're clearly in sin. I caught you. Nathan behind you, for some reason, is really enjoying na 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 I don't know why. My children. Oh, okay, it's his children. Okay. So I got you. I caught you, right? First thing I do is not run to the church. Did you hear what Leon did? Did you know about Leon? No, it's not what you're supposed to do. I'm supposed to go to Leon privately, separately, individually, and talk about it. Brother to brother. Notice the language. You've won your brother. This is a brother thing. This is family stuff. I love you enough to come confront you. My father one time sat me down and tried to explain to me that after he had worked all day long, and had worked hard all day long, that when he came home, he was not looking to come beat the children. (laughs) This was not at the top of his list. He wanted to come home and sit down and have a nice dinner with his Five happy children. And we would all smile and laugh and say, yes or no, man. And then we'd all scamper off to our bedrooms, happy little children. Except that all day long while he'd been at work, my mother had been saying to the children, wait till your father gets home. (laughs) So then he comes through the door. Mom meets him at the door and says, your children. And then begins the litany of complaints. So now dad's in the room about to correct me. But he explained to me, I love you. I don't want to be mad at you. I have to do this because if I don't, you'll grow up to be a brat. (laughs) If I don't do this, then someday you're not going to respect authority and you're going to end up in jail or in hell. So I, I have to do this, but I don't want to do this. But he would correct me because he loved me, not because he hated me. Okay, you get the idea? The whole point of that story was, if you love your brother and he's in trouble, he's caught in a sin, you'll go to him out of love for the purpose of restoring him. Get this right. The purpose of church discipline is never to run the guy out of town on a rail. The purpose of church discipline is always restoration. You're always bringing them back to the fold. You're calling them to repentance. And you love them enough to do it. But then you need to love them enough to keep it private. Because you respect them as a person enough that you don't go tell it everywhere. If they won't hear you, you come back with another witness. You confront him again. Now two people are confronting you. Two people are confronting you about your sin, and we're both aware of it. We're both witnesses to it. We can both testify that you're guilty of this. If he won't hear the two witnesses, then you take it to the assembly. And here's what happens. And by the way, I apologize because we have an employee of the IRS in our midst. So I apologize for the next insult. If he refuses to listen to the assembly, let him be like a Gentile or a tax gatherer. (laughs) Tax gatherer. Okay, Matthew, who wrote this, was a tax gatherer. Highly hated by the Jews because they were collecting money from the Jews to give to the Roman authorities. And the Roman authorities had the Jews under their thumb. And so, insult to injury, not only are you being occupied by a foreign Gentile source, but you also now have to pay them taxes. And some Jews were busy collecting those taxes for the Romans. They were known as publicans. Hated by the Jews. Matthew was one of them. So he gets this insult when he quotes it. Or you treat them like a Gentile. This is, again, why I said it's important to make the distinction here between the word assembly and the word church. Because the word church includes Gentiles. And we're really happy about that. But as Jesus is saying this, he's saying it to the assembly of Israel who don't like Gentiles. Gentiles are outsiders. Gentiles are foreign to the covenants of God. Gentiles don't have the law. They don't have the promises. They don't have the covenant. They don't have Moses. They don't have the prophets. They don't have the scripture. Gentiles, we hate them. So Jesus says, this is how extreme it has to be. Remember when we looked in Deuteronomy, he said the whole purpose of these rules was to drive evil out of Israel, out of the assembly. And so the ultimate punishment for someone who will not repent of their ongoing sin, the ultimate punishment is, well, then you're out Mm. because we can't have you affecting the whole rest of the congregation, the whole rest of the assembly because sin is described as leaven and a little leaven leavens the whole lump. But you don't start with get out. You don't start at I've caught you in a sin. I'm going to tell everybody. I'm going to do some rumor mongering. And then we're all going to get together and throw you out. The purpose is always, always, always restoration out of love. Loving somebody enough to confront them about their situation. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. Truly, I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven if this sounds familiar we saw it just a couple of chapters ago and we need to talk about it it's 12 o'clock now i need about 10 more minutes is that okay is it really hot in here yeah somebody open that front door and let's just let the air in somebody go open that door that fan rattles and may decapitate someone (laughs) and we don't want that well it depends who but we don't we generally don't have a higher speed. No, that's fine. That'll be good. Terrific, thanks. Because we have to talk about this phrase, "Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven." You may recall, back in chapter 17, go back to chapter 17, verse 17, this is the exchange that Jesus had with all the apostles. It's a group conversation. In fact, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. But still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets, and he said, but who do you say that I am? And it's Simon Peter who answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. He revealed this to you. We talked about that at length a few weeks ago, that Christianity is a revealed religion. If you know who Christ is and you understand that he's the son of God, you didn't figure that out. Flesh and blood didn't teach it to you. God, in phenomenal grace and kindness, has given you the ability to understand his word, his son, and the great plan of salvation and redemption that he designed before the foundation of the world. "'Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. "'My Father who is in heaven revealed it. "'And I say to you that you are Peter, Petros, "'and on this rock I will build my ecclesia, my church. "'And the gates of Hades or the gates of hell "'will not overcome it or not overpower it "'depending on your translation. "'And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, "'and whatever you shall bind on earth "'shall be bound in heaven.' And whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we talked about the fact that the Catholic Church has completely misappropriated that entire text. And they have said that Peter is the rock on which the church is built. But I showed you that Jesus actually used two words there. He used a word that means diminutive, small, pebble, and he used a word that means rock, solid rock. I argue that the rock that the church is built on is the declaration, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. The church is not built on Peter. But then the church at Rome gets a hold of that second phrase, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and they say Peter, right now, has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And that this power of binding and loosing that was given to Peter, they say, is the power to forgive sin or to retain sin, which is why Catholics go to confession to a priest and pour out their sins and then he gives them a penance to do. And whatever that penance, if they'll do it, the priest seems to have the power or claims to have the power to forgive that sin based on the fact that they say that they are the continuation of Peter's primacy in the church, Peter being the rock and Peter having the authority of the keys of heaven which give him the power to bind and loose. Got all that? Okay, so then I asked the question a couple weeks ago when we looked at this text, exactly at what point in Jesus' ministry did he give Peter these keys? Nowhere. And the reason this is important is because Matthew quotes again in Matthew eighteen eighteen: truly I say to you, Whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Who did he say that to? I can wait. I have nowhere to be. He said it to the disciples collectively. So really then, who has this ability? Who has these supposed keys of binding and loosing? Is it Peter exclusively? Well, no, because not only do you never see Jesus give such keys to Peter, but when he returns to the binding and loosing language, he says it to all the apostles. Now, what's really important to understand, and this is going to get technical for just a second, this is one of those places where the Greek actually helps. The word bind and the word loose are in a particular verbal tense in the Greek. It's a perfect passive participle and all that means all you need to know about that had it been translated in our English translations to really reflect the Greek verbal tense it would have said whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven in other words In contradistinction to the way Rome thinks this passage is supposed to be understood, what Jesus actually said to all of his apostles is, you are now a reflection of what I'm going to determine from heaven. And the things that I determine to be bound, you will bind. The things that I determine to be loosed, you will loose. They are not acting as independent agents who have the authority within themselves to start binding and loosing. Instead, what they are is people who will be under the control of a sovereign master, and the things that they bind and loose will be those things that have been bound and loosed in heaven. And all 12 have that authority. You got me? Yes, sir. I think we could argue later about whether or not Judas had that authority but he said it to the group. Verse 19, two verses and we're done. Again, I say that if two of you... Okay, who's he talking to? Say it again, Jamie. You just said it. Disciples, right? He's talking to the 12. He's talking to the 12 and he says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, that they may pray... It shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Okay, that's been demonstrated as we continue through the Gospels. As we get into the book of Acts, you see that they actually do like Peter healing the lame man at the gate. When he's asking for alms and Peter says, silver, gold, I have nothing, but such as I have, I give to you. Stand up and walk. Okay, well, he's doing this very thing. Jesus has said, if any, and by the way, Peter was with John at the time. There were two. He says, any two of you who are in agreement, pray to God about it, and my Father will respond to you. Now, here's another group that has misappropriated a verse. The Pentecostals have gotten a hold of that verse and said, any two of us that get together and agree about anything, we pray to God, and he'll do it. And then they get together, and they go pray to God, and God doesn't do it because he's not obligated to. And then they question the Bible. Or they question Christianity, or they question Jesus, or they just leave the church. Because again, they've been so ill-taught, so mistaught, that they don't understand that this text was speaking directly to the 12 who were standing in front of him. And it says so. Got Got it? Clears up a lot of problems, clears up a lot of confusion, but then this is where it really gets controversial, verse 20, because we in the church like to quote it. For where two or three have been gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. And we said that to the apostles. Wherever two or three of you, you apostles, the ones I've chosen, wherever you're together in two or three, I'm always right there in the midst with you. That's why you can ask the Father for anything if there's two of you. And he'll do it for you. Why? Because of my authority. You ask it in my name, under my authority. Then I'll do it for you. So... Let's put that all together and call it a morning. Because the very next thing that has to be discussed, Peter then asks, typical Peter, Mr. Sandal and Mouth, it's Peter who then recognizes, well, if we do it your way, we end up having to forgive them. (laughs) Because if they sin, I mean, he really sinned. I'm telling you, Leon, I caught him in a sin. I'm telling you. But then I... I went and saw him privately, and he sort of listened. I came back with a witness. Tom and I confronted him. He repented, and now he's back. Now I have to forgive him. Oh. (laughs) So Peter's very next question is, well, how many times? Okay, we get the program. We get the whole restore the brother thing. But really, how often? I mean, isn't there a cutoff point, Jesus? How many times do we forgive, Leon, before we go, you know what? We're going to leap right to the you're out part. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to talk about forgiveness. And when you put all this together, Jesus is saying, number one, greatness is humility. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, serve. Faith, belief in Christ has to be childlike. Not questioning, not arguing, not constantly debating. And then he says, understand that if you belong to me, I'm not going to lose you. It's not your father's will to ever lose anyone. So I'm never going to lose you. And so knowing that, there are going to be some people who are going to stray. There are going to be some sheep who do stray who do sin. What do you do about them? Good shepherds, if they find a sheep that belongs to them laying in a ditch... Don't accuse the sheep and leave them in the ditch. Well, you know, if you'd been smarter, you wouldn't be there now. (laughs) No, he's a sheep. He's not smart to start with. That's why he's in the ditch. Because he needs a shepherd. And the good shepherd brings him back. Why? Why does the good shepherd bring him back? Because he belongs to him. The sheep belongs to the shepherd. It's his sheep. So he brings his sheep back. Now the good shepherd turns that over to the church, to the community, to the assembly that is assembled in his name. and says, now when somebody wanders, when somebody wanders off, when somebody sins, when someone's in rebellion, if they belong to me, bring them back. Restore them. Go to them privately. Confront them. Exhort them. Teach them. Use two witnesses if you have to. Use the whole assembly if you have to. And if they don't hear the assembly, put them out. But if they're sheep, if they belong to Christ, if Christ is in them and they're in Christ, how many times do we forgive them? The answer is going to be as many times as it takes. You just keep demonstrating grace. Grace again, grace again, grace again, grace again. Grace sufficient. Grace enough. Grace to cover all our sins. Grace, 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 grace. That's the answer. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.